Good evening, brethren and sisters and young people. Well, we're coming to the end of the first section of the Song of Solomon, the section that deals with the Jewish bride, and we will hopefully cover the end of Song 5, which is we've titled The Wedding, and Song 6, which is The Marriage. We should cover that tonight, so we'll come tonight to the end of this Jewish section. As we noted last time, I suppose, that we're starting to move a little quicker now because um, many of the terms that we're picking up we've already been introduced to because there are so many of these words and phrases which are duplicated many times in the Song of Solomon. Chronologically, you remember, we were talking last time that we're actually dealing now, of course, with the time of the wedding at Sinai in the fifth song. Although the wedding is not particularly mentioned in the Song of Solomon, we need to go to Psalm 45, really, to get the the picture of the wedding. Um, However, it's alluded to in the verses that we dealt with last time, which was chapter 3, verses 6 to 11, or 6 to 10, where we had the immortalised saints, the bride, um, uh, on their way up from Sinai to come into the (coughs) land. And it is, of course, the the, um, natural Israel which is called upon, firstly, to acknowledge... um, uh, this bride as it comes up and they are called the question comes out from the from the uh, from natural Israel from verses 6 to 10 it's the voice of the guests at the wedding if you like in the figure that's used but it is natural Israel who ask questions concerning this um, uh, caravan if you like that moves up and we picked up of course that it was the saints very beautifully depicted here both as the bride and as the three score heroes that are around the, the, um, the carriage as it makes its way up. And then in verse 11 the bride then responds and she says to the daughters of Zion, the ones who are speaking in verses 6 to 10, uh, says to them that they are now to acknowledge who he is. He is King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him. So in spiritual language they are told that this is Christ, the immortalised Christ. Um, Now we move on into chapter 4 and it's now the groom uh, cannot contain himself as he looks at this beautiful bride, the one who is his. And we've said it before, but we'll say it again, that this is the part that to me I find so, uh, so wonderful and yet in itself almost unbelievable that in the context of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom, one would feel that the emphasis is upon the groom but it's a spiritual book in which we have Christ's attitude to his bride and he spends the last part of uh, song 5 and all of song 6 basically talking about his bride as he shows the ecclesia, the saints, to the world and it's very beautiful in that context now in verse 1 then of uh, of, uh, chapter 4 down to uh, verse 7 which ends the fifth song we have the words now of the groom as he talks about his bride. She is the immortalised bride. And therefore all of the characteristics that we're going to pick up in these chapters, of course, are characteristics of immortality. But they all have their origins right throughout Scripture in the qualities that are being seen in us now. Uh, of course, the bride in all her beauty here and immortality is but a reflection anyway um, of what uh, she had been uh, in her time of espousals and that comes out so very strong in the, the Song of Solomon as well particularly as we come to the next song as we come to the sixth song and he praises the fact that she has kept herself exclusively for him now as we come down through these uh, verses from uh, verse 1 to verse 7 of chapter 4 
there are seven particulars actually of the bride that are mentioned a number of course which is very significant to us and very important seven particulars they're the eyes, the hair, the teeth, the lips and what are here called the temples but we believe that they're the cheeks the neck and the breasts they're the seven parts and you can pick them out uh, uh, later on perhaps highlight them in either your notes or, or in your Bible pick out those seven points of the bride it's interesting that when you go through to the, uh, the other writings of the Song of Solomon and you deal with the virtuous bride in Proverbs 31 and we spent some time earlier showing the connection between these that in the writings of Solomon you have in the Song of Solomon basically the emphasis is upon the time of espousals in Psalm 45 you have the wedding and in, the, in um, Proverbs 31 you've got the marriage because the woman there, the virtuous woman is married with children so it's our work in the kingdom age when she is highlighted in Proverbs 31 you find that there are, there are 14 particular qualities of her in that book, in that song in the song concerning the virtuous woman there are 14 qualities emphasised now of course here we have the Jewish bride mentioned there are 7 but of course as we put the whole of the Song of Solomon together we've got both Jew, Jew and Gentile bride who is beautifully depicted as a virtuous woman therefore it's doubled and you've got 14 particulars in the uh, uh, Proverbs 31 and Proverbs 31 and perhaps we can turn to that and just pick up the last words because it's very very um, much um, aligned to what we're dealing with tonight because as we've said uh, Proverbs 31 and from verse 10 to verse 31 the well known section of the virtuous woman must be seen as the bride in her immortality stage although it's got lessons for us now she is married with children so it's the follow on from the Song of Solomon in that sense when you talk about when it talks about the bride it sums up her, her qualities from verse 29 many daughters have done virtuously but thou excellest them all and we're going to see that that very closely aligns with these chapters these two songs of Song of Solomon because she was indeed very virtuous Favour is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Now you could not get a better summary of the fifth and sixth song of the Song of Solomon, because all of those points are going to come out. The word favour there is the word fair that we have introduced to in chapter 4 verse 1. So that we, it's talking of her beauty, that there are many beautiful women but beauty itself is deceitful beauty is vain but a woman that feareth Yahweh she shall be praised and that's what this song is all about here is the immortalised bride and the groom is more than happy to praise her right from the time that she moves up from Sinai the emphasis is upon her when we come into the sixth song we're going to find that well no it's here in this fifth song rather so we come down into verses three and four that uh, we're going, sorry it is, it's in the next song getting mixed up but in the next song in song 6 which we'll be dealing with tonight the bride is likened as bringing forth fruit and that's what we've got here in verse 31 give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates so there's a very close connection with the ideas that are presented in the 5th and the 6th songs of the Song of Solomon so we come back to Song, uh, song of Solomon chapter 4 and verse 1 and the beauty of the bride is expressed this way. Firstly, she is fair. Now you can perhaps 
already put down there. We've already noted that in chapter 1 verse 8. I'm not going to go into great detail. But remember it was a word that occurred 12 times in the Jewish section. Okay, so it's one of the clues to the Jewish bride. And we picked up those, we picked up those from time to time. It's a word used 12 times in the first six songs. So it's a very good uh, word that links the first songs with the, uh, with the Jews themselves, the Jewish bride. Behold thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Now again, of course, notes on chapter 1 verse 15. You could put alongside that where we've already looked at the idea of dove's eyes. And remember we emphasise that in the Hebrew it's not really as normally is seen as an eye like a dove it's the eye is a dove unusual picture but the eye is a dove itself and it's translated that way in in some of the translations but certainly that in the Hebrew Um, the thine eyes are doves is what it is actually saying so all the qualities of the dove that symbol of Israel are seen in the bride and one has to look at it and I think what did we come up with about seven or eight qualities of the of the dove back in chapter 1 verse 15 um, I've just got a note alongside that that uh, the, the uh, rabbis have a comment concerning the eyes that the eyes are the window to the heart um, and uh, of course that's the emphasis here that upon the eyes of the bride is that of course they are a reflection of her character when I was doing this section just in the last couple of days my mind suddenly went to a book that I picked up years ago in fact I, I think it was back when I was going to art lessons and I picked it up mainly because it had so many expressions of faces in it but it actually was a book on physiognomy 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 the reading of faces physiognomy physiognomy the, the art of reading the face and it was interesting to read this book uh, and as I said I only got it for drawings because it has every shape of face you can possibly think of through the book but it went through all of these parts and you could take out of the first section of every time it expressed what the, the idea is in the part of the face that they're talking about it fitted beautifully with the characters here in this book and it was interesting that I've of course got plenty of Jewish books on, uh, that deal with the same subject and in each case they lined up perfectly and the book, that book also made the comment that uh, it is a reflection of the character that's seen in the eyes of a person. Um, so uh, the eyes are the first thing that are emphasised and they're probably the first thing that we notice about most people is their eyes. The eyes play a very large part of course in communication and let's remember that we've got a bride here who's been absent from her husband, who's been absent from her beloved and now she's been married to him and he now appreciates the part that the eye played in that time period particularly when all they had was eye contact there was no physical contact but they could have eye contact and spiritually of course we're in that situation uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ so the eye is of course the, the, um, uh, the character of the bride that's being emphasised and it's within thy locks now that's an interesting phrase you know there's a lot of practical lessons as we pointed out before come out of Song of Solomon if you come through into to the writings of Paul in the First Corinthians 11 he deals with the woman and that her hair is given to her as a veil now the word this within thy locks the word locks there is veil within thy veil and wherever the bride is mentioned the word for hair or locks is the word for veil wherever the groom is mentioned the word that's used for hair means to cut short so there's a principle right back here 
Um, right back here, you know, a thousand years before Paul, there is a principle being established in the Song of Solomon that long hair identifies the woman, cut short hair identifies the man. And the Hebrew words are very specific. That whenever the girl is mentioned, whenever the bride is mentioned, the word locks is used, which is the word for veil. And um, whenever he, the groom is mentioned, uh, the word is the word for cut hair. So there's a spiritual principle here interwoven into this as well. Now alongside that, therefore, where it says within thy locks, one can put down First Corinthians 11, verses 3 to, I think it's about verse 12, um, where Paul deals in some detail with the principle of the woman's hair given to her as a covering. And of course, in this context, context therefore, we'd have to see a spiritual principle here that he's acknowledging that she has always been in submission to him, because that's what it's all about. First Corinthians 11, the hat, the hair as a covering, is the sign of submission. It is the sign of, of um, uh, the husband being the Lord. So the very reference to it here, to the bride, is a reminder that she is one who knows that principle and has always in her life made her beloved her Lord. But that's the role that Christ plays in our life. Now the sisters will appreciate that, but as brethren we have to appreciate it too, that we are, to Christ, his bride. And the very principle that we would maintain and perhaps stress with our wife has to be in us. And I suppose one could say, therefore, we could expect that wives would not be happy if they saw spirit, did not see spiritually in their husbands the principles that they expect in them. Uh, they expect the wife to show um, that right reverence for the husband, for the Lord. And uh, we, as the bride of Christ, have to do the same. So the principle applies to us as well. So within thy locks has a lot of spiritual principles as we've seen. The problem as we've had all the way through the Son of Solomon of course is to not over, uh, overdo these, um, these examples of why overdo, that's the wrong word, um, to spend too much time on them. There are just so many principles in this book, a book which normally people look at and think, oh well it's just surface. Um, uh, and uh, in fact talking to an interested friend at the, the um, seminars last night and he claims that he's got a what he calls a good grasp of all the books of the Bible and I said what about Son of Solomon he said there's nothing in that <laughs> you know he said so it took him you know, a couple of nights to read through and study that no problems um, but of course we've found the opposite that it's a book that one could spend a lifetime on because there are just so many principles here and practical ones at that and uh, one is introduced to us here even in the phrase within thy locks thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead now let's read through to verse 2 where it continues that picture and says and thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn which come up from the washing whereof every one that beareth twins and none of them and none is barren among them and so he talks about her hair firstly in verse 2 and he likens them to goats which appear and the word peer appear in the Hebrew has the idea to repose or to lie it's actually the word for dawn one of the words for dawn in the Hebrew because it is like the dawn lays across the surface of the, the horizon so this word is used for that so it has the idea of this flock of goats if you use your imagination you could just see a mountain and these flock of sheep just laying over the side of that mountain and they're the curly hair of the, the, uh, the wild sheep being the, the, uh, the picture of the hair of the bride but then he goes on to say that her teeth then are like a flock of sheep which are evenly shorn White, very white, of course, which come up from the washing, and everyone that bear a twin, everyone is bare, every 
whereof everyone beareth twins in other words they were in couples and none is barren among them there's none missing literally that is in the Hebrew they've got no missing teeth no false teeth here in this bride she's been on a perfect diet all of her life and her teeth show it now the reason I've read those two straight through like that is that if you come across to chapter 6 and, um, and verses 5 to 6 you'll find that almost the same words are said concerning the Gentile bride and here's one of our clues to the distinction in this book because we're now in chapter 6 and at verses 5 and 6 talking of not the Jewish bride but the Gentile bride but notice what it says turn away thine eyes from us from me for they have overcome me thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead notice the missing word what is it mount next one says thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing whereof everyone beareth twins and there is not one bear among them word missing shorn ok so there's two words missing one's referring to the Jews one's referring to the Gentiles now the point is of course that the word mount is immediately to our minds anyway the indication of the elevated position of Israel as opposed to the Gentiles they are the ones who are the mountain they are the mountain of Yahweh in fact the mount, the word mount of course is used of Israel on several occasions they are Yahweh's mountain you put down alongside that if you like Jeremiah 17 verse 3 would be one occasion at least where uh, Yahweh speaks of Israel's elevated position that she is his mountain so that mount is applicable to Jew in that context not to the Gentile the second thing is that word shorn literally means to trim down and of course in this context means chastisement and therefore would refer to Israel and not to the nations because it would speak of that which was necessary to purify the the Israelitish bride, the Jewish bride Um, uh, alongside in fact the word shorn there you could just follow this one yourself through you could put two quotes Judges 6 verses 36 to 40 and link it with Psalm 72 verse 6 what the point is there is a very simple one Gideon said to Yahweh I want a sign that thou wilt bless Israel and Yahweh said to him put out a fleece that which was shorn off a sheep put out a fleece and in the morning the dew will be on the fleece and the earth will be dry and he said next time you put it the other way round next time he put out it was the other way round and the fleece was dry and the earth was wet the spiritual principle Yahweh will bless Israel before he blesses the nations Israel is the fleece the earth of the rest of the nations and it will be in that order and not until Israel are blessed will the rest of the earth receive their blessing now that's picked up in Psalm 72 and verse 6 where it says that in Christ's reign that that, um, righteousness will come down as rain upon mown grass the word in the Hebrew is not mown grass it's fleece so you've got the picture from Gideon's he's saying in Psalm 72 rain will come down on the fleece now we what happens is that in this word fleece is that by extension one says as fleece is cut off a sheep therefore grass is cut therefore grass is referred to there are in fact Hebraists who say that that is a, an extension of that word which is improper it should be fleece so we should read in Psalm 72 the rain will come down upon the fleece and that would mean nothing of course to the translators and they would have therefore had to find some answer to it 
but it certainly is, has an understanding when you go back to Gideon where, Yahweh, where he said to Yahweh show me a sign you will bless Israel well he put rain or dew on the fleece so wool shorn, uh, the shorn sheep or the wool itself even is a representative of Israel and in this, in the, therefore as we said very appropriate for it to be used here of the bride so they are like flocks of goats that appear from Mount Gilead now Gilead actually the word literally means a heap of witnesses or a heap of witness I should say a heap of witness and it was known for its healing balm Jeremiah 8 verse 22 right? Jeremiah 8 verse 22 known for its healing balm the balm of Gilead so there's a lot of spiritual principles in the word Gilead itself it was also of course very rich pasture land we know from other places in scripture so uh, therefore it's very appropriate here in the context of a flock of sheep or goats um, in a place of course where they have um, uh, they have uh, grown strong and healthy it's a picture of the bride the teeth in verse 2 are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn which come down from the washing and the, again go, of course goes on to say that there is there are, they are like twins and there is none missing amongst them now there's a couple again of very important and interesting uh, principles that are being borne out here first one of course we pick up which is a very simple one they came up from the washing now of course spiritually speaking the wash, first washing is in the water but we, were, we are told of course by the Lord Jesus Christ that, that one must be born of water and of spirit and so there has in that sense been two washings with this bride she is very clean she's come up from washing by the word but of course in, spirit, in immortality also uh, is seen that principle of washing uh, Ephesians 5.26 of course would be a good, quality, good quotation to put down there that we must be washed by the word as a principle that we could apply to ourselves again we would say that while we're talking of a Jewish bride we don't of course therefore say this only applies to the Jewish bride she is part of the bride of Christ and therefore all of the principles that applied to natural Israel apply to us but it is interesting and exciting how that God puts them in the Song of Solomon in a particular context that relates either to Jew particularly or to Gentile so we know who we're talking about now of course it says there that um, they come up every one of them uh, bearing twins now I think I've got two points here in the margin looking for spiritual lessons and you could probably as we've found before you could probably find others as well but I've put two spiritual principles down there firstly balance for me twins two things identical means balance um, and it would speak of balance particularly in diet because it's talking of the mouth so here's one who's fed constantly upon the word of God and if you like it's, it's kept the diet clean therefore there is a balance there but the second thing which must come out of course as twins it's the sign always isn't it spiritually and scripturally as fruitfulness twins is a sign of fruitfulness so here we've got two spiritual ideas that we could take from this but here is a class of um, uh, this, this bride is made up of a class of people who have been very balanced and who have been very fruitful it, of course I suppose you could go another step further and say well if you're looking for spiritual principles if this bride represents the saints of God then there will be twins amongst them because there will be husband and wife there will be fathers and children 
there will be some from the same family and we would expect our children at least in the sight of God to be replicas of ourselves that's what they have, we call upon them you know, it's, uh, Psalm 127 they're like little olive shoots Psalm 128 they're like little olive shoots around the big olive tree they're replicas of the father so there's a twin sect idea there as well so a lot of ideas would come out of this term um, twins when we apply it spiritual and none are missing that's what word barren actually means there's none missing there are no gaps in these teeth now of course that would point again to two particular things one, correct diet uh, it's a well known fact of course today particularly that, that diet affects our teeth and um, therefore here is one who has had the correct diet they've been able to, to feed upon the meat of the word and the other thing that I'd see in that also is that we are talking of the bride in immortality which does include both Jew and Gentile and so none are missing in that sense twins probably comes into that as well this idea of twofold and the fact that there are none missing and let's be sure that those teeth represent of course there are parts part of the bride but there are quality of the bride therefore they in a sense can represent the bride and we'll be sure of one thing at the kingdom age in the kingdom age no true saint will be missing no true saint will be missing there will be of course those will be rejected judgment seat but they weren't true saints but there is this bride there is none missing is complete in verse 3 then it turns to her lips and of course the lips here the other when you're talking of teeth you're talking more of the mouth the lips are in and the eating of it eating uh, aspect whereas lips of course is talking of the speech uh, and in fact in the Hebrew I think I'm right and this in the Hebrew there's several words for lips um, Errol, can you remember? I've got an idea of several words for lips, but I know here that this is the this is lips as in talking. So lip and tongue is the same word. Can it be always the same word, or is there several words for lip? Could be right in one. Yeah, at least in yeah, at least in one case, it's the same word for tongue. But uh, I've got a note here that it just um, it's lips as talking, as distinct from the other use of word lips. So I suppose lips, there may be an emphasis in lips on maybe shouting, maybe kissing, maybe lots of other things involved. Um, but this is the one that speaks of talking particularly. So we've got no problem as to what it's talking about. That this is talking of their speech, and their speech is like a thread of scarlet. Thy speech is comely. So there it it. it um, uh, it makes it clear for us anyway that thy speech is comely so the lips are like a thread of scarlet and what comes out of that is speech which is comely alongside speech you could put down Proverbs 16 and uh, verse 24 um, where we read pleasant words we go back actually verse 23 the heart of the wise teacheth his mouth or that develops a palate and adds learning to his lips pleasant words are as an honeycomb sweet to the soul and health to the bones there is a way that seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death so a good quote there which is talking of the pleasant words being as a honeycomb and of course that's to be picked up again in the next song because the bride is actually bride is spoken of her as her lips dripping honey like the honeycomb so the same idea is taken up in the next song so it's like a thread of scarlet um, scarlet of course is one of those colours which 
is misaligned, uh, um, maligned in, in very often by us because we tend to emphasise it as an earthly colour, as the colour of sin. But primarily it's a godly colour. It's one of the colours of the spectrum. Um, the spectrum is the indication of divine colours. When you split up light, you get the basic colours and one of them is red. So therefore it's a godly colour. It may have a secondary application, does have an application to the flesh, but like many things, of course, um, in nature particularly, it can be either positive or negative. An eagle is a is an is a, um, abomination to Yahweh, yet it's a representative of Yahweh himself. So it can be looked at either negatively and positively. Now, red is that colour, and in this context it has to be seen positively. And the colour, it's the colour, of course, of sacrifice. It's the colour of sacrifice particularly. And so... In the, it would uh, indicate in this person a, a principle where they of course have made sacrifice as part of their life and my temples are like a piece of pomegranate with thy locks the word temples presents us with something of a problem because it's not definitive enough to tell us what part of the skull it is it means the thin part of the skull it's the word for thin or soft and it of course can go anywhere from the temples down to the chin that's your soft side of the, of the skull um, but as you read the picture here it would seem that the most appropriate is cheeks because it goes on to say that it's like uh, a split pomegranate and of course if you split a pomegranate the red pomegranate and, the, and, you, and you look at it you've got the two red cheeks it's hard to see how they would identify with the, the temples as it is here it certainly would spiritually there's no problem there if we're looking at it purely spiritually the pomegranate has a lot of spiritual lessons it's that fruit of course which is so beautiful type of the saints of God and was worn around the skirt of the, the, the high priest and had within it when it was split open the colours of red and white they were the predominant colours from within that fruit the, the red of the fruit and the white pithiness that was around it so red and white are the colours that are emphasised and there are a lot of spiritual principles there we can pick up which could apply to the, to the mind there's no doubt about that to the temple but in this actual picture if you try to draw it as a, as a physical thing uh, it would seem that it's referring to the cheeks which of course is the lower part of the, the uh, skull and out of that book I was mentioning earlier on whatever the phrase is um, physiognomy um, it uh, talks about the cheeks and the point that it makes is that cheeks which are hollow are a sign of grief but full and round are a sign of joy and that fits very beautifully here doesn't it because we've got the immortalised bride and there's perhaps nothing more symbolic than cheeks blown out than a, than a ripe pomegranate and uh, so that uh, the principle is probably here uh, of something similar to that it's like a pomegranate and again it's within my locks that Hebrew phrase that we picked up in, in verse 1 then he goes on and talks about the neck thy neck is like a tower of David builded for an armory whereupon there hang a thousand bucklers all shields of mighty men that last phrase there Rotherham's translation is very beautiful instead of all shields of mighty men equipment of heroes all equipment of heroes we've been introduced to this phrase mighty men when we looked at the bride coming up from Sinai in the earlier part of this song and the word, same word is used there and remember we picked up the point that there were three score and somebody here in the class showed us that um, or mentioned that of course in the days of David 
um, he had 30 heroes or valiant men here it's three score, it's double that so uh, a very appropriate number but it, it, Rotherham translates that as equipment of heroes now a neck is like the Tower of David again we've got one of those comments in Song of Solomon which turn us to the Jewish bride as distinct from the Gentile bride because in, in um, chapter 7 and verse 4 the Gentile bride is called the Tower of Lebanon now Lebanon of course has very much the emphasis upon the Gentile aspect whereas the Tower of David here is, um, is an emphasis upon Israel if you want to look at the Tower of David there's a couple of quotes you can put down here Micah 4 verse 8 where it's mentioned and Nehemiah 3 verse 25 and what we find in looking at those two verses is that, that it was a tower which was built by David in which he could overlook the city of Jerusalem and therefore it's called the Tower of the Flock because Jerusalem, the people, were his flock and he could stand out there and actually oversee what was taking place and so it is known in Micah 4 verse 8 as the Tower of the Flock and uh, it was the place where also David was to judge from when, when he had to judge, he would judge from that tower so it has this idea of looking after the flock and of judgment both of which are qualities which have to be seen in the, the spiritual bride um, as I said it's, it's mentioned in Micah 4 and in Nehemiah 3 um, it's interesting also too that um, in Second Samuel 22 and verse 51 in the last words of David there is an echo upon the, uh, this tower or the principles of this tower which seem to fit in uh, very beautifully with the, uh, with the quotation here we've got the last words of David in the second of Samuel 23 and actually they begin in verse 28 and he like it in, in uh, sorry, 23 it begins in chapter 22 but when David's talking he talks of a tower and he likens Yahweh to the tower so that we read in uh, chapter 23 22 and verse 51 he is the tower of salvation that's the same word for tower that we've got back there in, in Song of Solomon he, that is Yahweh, is the tower of salvation for his king and showeth mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore and so David who had a tower of judgment and of mercy if you like upon the people likens himself as being in a position where Yahweh is a blessing unto him so it would probably be David's spiritual explanation of what his tower represented his tower represented mercy um, unto Israel and he would judge from that tower and he sees himself as being in a position that his people are in he is in, in under, if it, as it were, or faces the tower of Yahweh himself. Um, yep. Right. Don't know what the connection is. Um, yeah. Yeah. They pick out as tower of Eda. Um, right. 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 So that the translators have, have said that tower is the tower of Eda. That's what you're saying. Yeah. 
No, I don't know. Um, the note I've got, um, and it's picked up in, in each of the notes actually on Song of Solomon, that the Tower of the Flock, they suggest in Micah, is the Tower of David, which he built. So that would contrast with that, but I, don't, I haven't got the answer to it. So, um, I suppose one could follow it through by looking at the word Edar. Yeah. Well, right, right. If that's the case, it probably wouldn't be the appropriate um, um, phrase quote to use. Although the principle, of course, could be could be seen in that uh, if it be a tower in which one overseer the flock or overseer the people, then it might be appropriate. Um, but anyway, you could follow that one up. Um, I was somewhere. Could be too, yeah. It is either, right, so that answers that. So uh, you put the margin could possibly be right there. Um, although here in Son of Solomon, of course, it is specifically the Tower of David. Or whether, and this is a possibility, I, don't know, I haven't done a study of Micah, uh, but if he has, but maybe that tower was taken by David and, and given his name. Where's Eda in relationship to Jerusalem? Right. Where would it be in relation? Yeah. Anyway, uh, something somebody could uh, could follow up. Um, the tower. Uh, but in Nehemiah three, uh, and both I think about verse fifteen or somewhere around that, and verse twenty-five, it talks of the tower that David built. So that would definitely be the one. Whether it's the one in Micah four. Would you have to follow that one through? Um, all right, um, let's move on because we we're going to try and cover the next song um, as well. So we'll just get through this quickly. A neck. Uh, first thing we'd notice, it's talking about a neck being like a tower. Now, of course, the only way that a neck would be like a tower is, of course, if a person has their head outstretched. That's the obvious thing. And I put alongside that immediately, my mind went straight to Luke 21, verse 28. Uh, lift up thy heads, for thy redemption draweth near. Um, certainly it would be a head lifted up that's emphasised for a neck to be like a tower. When a person's got their head down, you wouldn't of course expect it to be called a tower. And around this tower then was these uh, bucklers and shields, which were signs of war. And it was a, a common thing to show, of course, the results of battle, the evidence of warfare, particularly when they won, was to commemorate that by hanging these shields uh, to commemorate that now how fitting this is because this is the bride who, and it's evidence of her warfare against the flesh isn't it she's now immortal and those bucklers and shields are the evidence of her warfare against the flesh she's won the battle and uh, she is able therefore to, to show the, the, uh, that fact by the bucklers and shields which are there supported around the neck and thy two breasts in verse 5 are like two young rows the twins that feed among the lilies. Now, again, we've just emphasised, we've said it before in our early classes, the word breasts, of course, has firstly the idea of nourishment, primarily nourishment. And it's important to see it in the, that in the, in the context in Song of Solomon. One would do a great injustice to try and change it because we may be found the words are a little improper today. Um, it would be an injustice because that's what the word means and represents to the Jew, whereas the chest... Uh, refers of course to the man and strength. So
so it's talking of course of of um, the here is one who has been sustenance to others here is one who has been of benefit to others um, and the nourishment that's seen in this bride of course is her work that she has accomplished in her time of probation she is in the 8th chapter when speaking of the Gentile bride of course she is given as being fully matured and where she speaks of her breasts as being great towers as in comparison to her little sister who has no breasts so we've got to pick up that point here too that this is a sign of maturity and it is, it's the bride in absolute maturity she's in immortality, you can't get any more mature than that and so um, the emphasis there is maturity and nourishment in using the breast but notice it says that they're like two young rows that are twins which feed among the lilies now I find this very beautiful and some as, as we've pointed out before some find the book of Song of Solomon a little bit distasteful but it's comments like this which highlight in my mind just how tasteful the book is and how beautifully set out it is because um, when you um, uh, when you find uh, the groom speaking here he talking about the bride talks about them being like two young rows amongst the lilies that's how he sees her breasts when the bridesmaids are speaking of the bride and they're the ones who actually see her in all her, her, um, her nudity they see her unclothed they don't see her amongst the lilies but you see you've got a very subtle picture here of a groom who's, who is in fact talking about his bride and her beauty but he's doing it in a very discreet way and saying that her breasts are like these young rose which you can just see you can just see that they're there over in amongst the lilies so there is this discreetness here in the book but spiritually there's some powerful points firstly and we might sort of add to that too this point that the row of course is known and used in scripture as a symbol of shyness so here's the same thing we've got a very discreet book we've got a man talking about a woman's body and when talking about this part of her body he says that he uses a word he uses a word which would link us with shyness so it's a part of the body which to him is covered he knows it's there, it's covered, it's behind the lilies and so both the idea of behind the lilies and the roe as a shy animal bring out this, um, this aspect of the tenderness of the book but it says that, they, it, what, that it, feeds, uh, the, uh, it is feeding amongst lilies now lilies in the Song of Solomon is the ecclesia the bride is a lily amongst lilies says the, the groom and the lilies represent the ecclesia now see what's being put together in one verse we've got her breasts mentioned which are nourishment and the working which work where she's been doing that is in the lilies so it's the ecclesia that's benefited from this bride now we take our minds back to her time of probation that's us are we fulfilling that role as the bride could it be said that nourishment is coming from us to the lilies are we there amongst the lilies feeding them or are we merely an appendage that means are we just coming to meetings and not putting any input are we perhaps coming into the ecclesial meeting and pulling it down which would be opposite to the idea presented in the breast here is a nourisher and the nourishing work has been in the ecclesia among the lilies so very powerful spiritual points that are being made here and then he goes on and says until the day break and the shadows flee away I'll get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense thou art all fear my love there is no spot in thee now the word break is that word to breathe we picked that up in the earlier chapter um, it means to breathe and has the idea of something cooling down as a person gets very hot 
and flushed and I go, that's the idea that's presented now we're talking about the bride she's just been formed in Sinai what's taking place well the effects of the coming of Christ leading up to Armageddon this is the time of great darkness upon the face of the earth this is the time of the greatest bloodshed the world has ever seen and he makes the appeal and says he looks at her beauty sees her in all her beauty but says that he can, it's going to have to wait to enjoy that beauty because we've got to wait until the day calls until the, the pressure of Armageddon is over until all of those things till the flat shadows flee away and we're talking of course of the darkest time in the world uh, I've got um, just a note alongside that to explain it hidden until the darkness of the night ends and the quotations I've got there Isaiah 60 verse 2 we should know that the gross darkness upon the people the time of darkness and shadow is this time we're talking about when the bride is made immortal and the other one is chapter 26 still in Isaiah Isaiah 26 verses 19 to 20 where the term is actually used of the bride in the chamber Uh, I'll just get the words exact here so I can read them for you Isaiah 26 and verses 19 and 20 thy dead shall live my dead body shall they arise Awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust for thy dew is as the dew of lights and thy earth shall, the earth shall cast out the dead. So it's in the context of resurrection and immortality upon the saints. The next verse says this Come my people enter thou into thy chambers and the word is the word for the bridal chamber enter thou into the bridal chamber shut the doors about thee hide thyself as it were for a little moment till the indignation be overpassed. Now that's what you've got here indignation be overpassed is equal to the day breathes so while he's admiring the beauty of the bride he suddenly has to turn away from her attention and say but the beauty of that bride is not going to be fully appreciated yet because the day has to cool and the shadows have to flee away but notice what he says he says while that's time's waiting he says I will get thee to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense now you know where I'm going to go to when I say mountain and hills Psalm 72 verse 3 same words the saints in immortality so in, in a very which might sound a bit confusing when you first look at it but it's of course a spiritual book he's actually used a figure of the bride here in calling the bride the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense and so he says that until the day break and the shadows flee away he's got to remain there with his bride and that's exactly what will happen Christ will remain with us for that time period until the bride can be shown till the, till the work of Christ can commence and uh, we'll be hid away for that little while and finally ends that song by saying thou art fair my love there is no spot in thee right, what quote would we put alongside no spot in thee Ephesians 5 I can look read. Ephesians 5 verse 27 that's right, the bride of, the, uh, of Ephesians 5, there is no, was no spot found in her. Now let's get into the next song, and we should be able to cover this, because again, a lot of these terms are going to be duplicated that we've already picked up. So we move into the last of the songs of the Jewish section. We've got this time period now of the kingdom of God is about to start, and the bride is going, bride has become the, the sorry, the, the, um, uh, yes the bride has become married to Christ but there are things that have to take place before they can go forth as husband and bride the husband and, and um, 
Yeah, husband and bride, husband and wife. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. That's another good one. No spot in me uh, from the Revelation 19, isn't it? Verse 8. Uh, it will be another good quote to put there. So we move on into chapter 4 and verse 8. We've got now, perhaps I'll give you the summary of this chapter, this song. You can write this down the left or right hand margin before we get into it. Verse 8 is the instruction of the bride. Now we believe it will be our time at Sinai. Although technically speaking the bride has moved up from Sinai in the previous song, yet this is a time of instruction we're talking about in verse 8. Um, Verses 9 to 15, the immortalised bride, the qualities are are there uh, again uh, given for us by the groom. It's the groom speaking by the way through all of those verses. Not yes, all of those verses. Um, no, not quite right. Verse yeah, verse fifteen. What am I saying? Verses nine to fifteen. The immortalised bride. It's the groom speaking, of course. The bride speaks in verse sixteen, and we could. T- I've got the heading on that: the influence of their marriage, or the effect of their marriage, whichever you like. Something is going to take place, and what it is is going to bring a north wind. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, the, the title I've got there, or summary of that verse, is The Call for the Nations to Rejoice. So the kingdom begins, if you like, is another way of putting it. So verse 8 is the instruction to the bride. Um, verse 9 to 15, the immortalised bride, the qualities. Verse 16, the influence of their marriage. And uh, chapter 5, verse 1, the call for the nations to rejoice. Now, the, the ones who are speaking, it is the groom in this whole song apart from verse 16, which is the bride. So again, the emphasis is upon the bride because the groom is speaking and she, he's giving the qualities of the bride, which is very beautiful when you think about it because it, it highlights in my mind the selflessness of Christ. It's a spiritual book, but the one who died for us is here depicted as still thinking about his bride. It's all he thinks about in the kingdom age. He's not there thinking, I have made it. Um, that uh, it's, he's not the emphasis is not upon himself. It's upon the ecclesia, and that's a very very beautiful principle that comes out of the Song of Solomon. Now in verse eight, then we have the bride and groom. The groom calls the bride to him, and they talk about their future work. And he puts it this way: Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shenna and Hermon, from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards. Now in simple terms, what he's telling him, telling the bride is in, in thought to come with him to Lebanon. Um, to get up in Lebanon, look down the land and see the beautiful uh, picture that is presented there, the work that is before them. In the symbol, it is the bride and groom looking out at the, their whole future life together. And, and looking at that and saying what, what there it all lies before us the work that we have to do and so he calls her up there where she can look down uh, from this high part of the north of Israel and look down uh, in symbol of the work that they have to do in the future it of course has its link again with Psalm 72 verse 2 because we're talking of mountains and little hills some of these are mountains some were not so big and it's talking of the elevated position of the bride in the future age 
and she is going to take the place of lions and leopards lions and leopards who now rule the world from their place are now going to be replaced by the bride it's all spiritual language talking about the elevation of the bride as the ruling class in the age to come so she's seen upon the mountains and she's seen in the position where there once was lions and leopards lions and leopards by the way are the two two of the animals mentioned in Isaiah 11 verse 6 as being tamed in the kingdom age and there's your link because on the you could say the nations today are represented some of them as lions and leopards but they'll be replaced in the kingdom age by the saints because they will be the ruling class and the lions and leopards will be tamed I've got a note on verse 8 from the Christadelphian of, of uh, 1889 uh, which Brother Ask quotes in his um, book on Song of Solomon very beautifully summarises what's happening in verse 8 because um, he says this when the Messiah is enthroned as king of the land and proceeds to take possession of it to its utmost limits he will say come with me from Lebanon my spouse with me from Lebanon look from the top of Amana from the top of Shenna and from Hermon from the lion's dens and from the mountains of the leopards um, and continues taking up their position upon the commanding border the sons of Zion now in this song the sorry that's his comment the songs the sons of Zion may now view the landscape of the goodly land fragrant with rich odours a land flowing with milk and honey outstretching eastwards in all the length of the Euphrates to the west sea so brother Thomas saw that verse there as depicting Christ and the saints looking at the the um, at the land at the beginning of the kingdom as he goes forth to do his work very beautifully fits into the to the literal picture of the marriage that is presented in the Song of Solomon because it's the young couple who now are married and just looking at the work that is laid before them now we haven't got time to deal with all of these words here um, but um, you could perhaps just quickly mark down I've got some notes here on these names um, uh, the principles out of it are Lebanon would represent righteousness it's the word for white pointed that out before uh, righteousness um, amana is the of course comes from the Hebrew word amen um, which uh, has the idea of a covenant so therefore it represents truth righteousness in Lebanon truth in amana um, the word shena actually means a coat of mail so we've got here the idea of, of defence and Herman of course is that which would represent uh, it's just the word means high means elevation so we've got I would see four principles here righteousness, truth, defence and elevation are the things that are emphasised in these, these uh, names that are here verse 9 then to, to verse 15 as we said is the qualities of the immortalised bride um, in verse 9 is that beautiful verse we looked at in our earlier class when we were looking at the, the customs of the Jews thou hast, past tense thou hast ravished my heart my sister spouse thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes with one chain of thy neck the word chain there is the Hebrew to turn so one turn of your neck so we've just got a simple picture here where the groom is talking of his bride and says every time you turn I catch the look with one eye it's enough to turn my heart 
Now he's talking of the time of probation. He's talking of our time now. And when we turn to Yahweh, when we turn to Christ through prayer, it ravages his heart. The word means literally to encourage. It encourages him. And as our prayers are sent to our Father, it's like this bride here who turns the neck to him, turns the neck and looks at him, and it encourages him. And it's uh, probably an aspect that we, we, would need to, we need to think about in regard to our prayers. It's again the selfless aspect of it. We're not just praying because we want something. God and his Son wants to hear our prayers. It excites them and encourages them to hear us praying. And so he's referring to her and how that she has in that time of probation when they could have no physical contact, even just the glances of her eye were enough to encourage him to this time. Um, the phrase there, sister spouse, we emphasised before, it's only used in the Jewish section because it's inappropriate in the Gentile section. We're not related to Christ, to the groom. In the Gentile section, the bride says, Oh, I wish I were your brother. So she says, I wish I were your brother, whereas this one is related to him. He calls her his sister. And so that phrase, as we said, only occurs in the first half of the Song of Solomon because it only can relate to Israel. Um, verse 10 how fair is thy love my sister spouse how much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments and than, uh, than all spices again very beautiful spiritual principles Proverbs 27 and verse 9 is a good one to put down alongside that where Solomon brings out the um, spiritual point concerning uh, ointments and what they represent um, 27 and verse 9 uh, Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart so doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel so hearty counsel is likened to fine ointments and here he is talking about he's reminiscing back on their time of espousal she's now made immortal and as he looks at her he's, he's reflecting upon all the qualities that drew him to her now spiritually brothers and sisters Christ is looking at us and he must see these spiritual qualities in us he must be drawn to us by the fact that we continually turn to him and we look at him that we are like this um, uh, ointments and spices that is sweet counsel as we talk with Christ as we communicate with him and in verse 11 thy lips O my spouse drop as the honeycomb honey and milk are under thy tongue and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon we could perhaps underline honey and milk again an indicator we're talking of the Jewish bride how many times do we read of a land flying with milk and honey those two words coupled together have a special identification with Israel but the lips the words that flow forth are like the, like a honeycomb but not just a honeycomb a honeycomb which is saturated with honey because the honey drips from it there's too much to be contained in the honeycomb. Now a couple of vital quotes to put alongside that. Proverbs 14 verses 25 to 27 Proverbs 14, 25 to 27 and chapter 24 verses 13 and 14. And you'll be aware I think of, of both of those when you look them up. They're both the quotations which talk about the word as representative of honey and the need for us to partake of that honey now what it's telling us is this bride was so full of the word that it dripped from her 
it dripped from her she had so much that it dripped from her and of course the spiritual lesson is so very clear isn't it why do we do the readings from the Bible every day why do we why do we study the word of God why was the parable of the extra vessel of oil given for the very same principle for this principle to be illustrated to us that it's not just a matter of filling up a honeycomb it's overfilling the honeycomb it's getting that word in excess in our life and of course if it flows out if it was to drip out from the honeycomb others can partake of it and that's what the word is all about we don't study the word for our own sake we study that we might give it to others and that's a very important and, and a principle from the word of God but you can't give out honey unless you've got it yourself and so it is a honeycomb which is dripping with honey that others might receive it and of course milk again we know the principle of milk in scripture the milk of the word so it's talking of someone fully acquainted with the word of God and as such they are a benefit to others you know you've just got to use your imagination a bit and, and link verses together and the, the principle there linked with the one that we read earlier um, about the, um, the bride have, uh, having two breasts which are like young rows that feed among the lilies link it with this and you've got the similar principle that they must be nourishment nourishment that's not only for the bride but she must be able to give that nourishment to others um, this is a bit of an aside but I'm always very impressed when I talk about that giving food to others of, in the studies of nature that we've given of the, the, um, uh, the ant who of course um, has that type in scripture of the ecclesia of God in the colony of the ant the ants feed each other and there are two ways they do that all the ants other than of course the, the queen ant all the ants down, down in the nest are female and they all therefore lay eggs but they're tropic eggs they, they are not fertilised and they feed each other with those and they will actually feed another ant with their egg and they have done tests and found that if a old ant feeds, if a young ant rather feeds another young ant it will keep the ant alive but it won't grow in size it needs, an ant, it needs an egg from an older ant before it will grow in size beautiful principle of course that the study of the word is so important but we need older experienced heads that we might grow but there's this sharing of food and the other thing of course inside the ant is the fact that it has this, this way of masticating its food and it goes into one of two stomachs the labial or the, the crop and it feeds out regurgitates that food and feeds other young ants and as it does it it will do it in accordance with the age of the ant so if it's a young ant it knows to bring the food from the, from, the, um, from, the la- from the crop which is the very masticated food if it brought it up from the labial it couldn't eat on it, it would choke so it brings up the very masticated food for the young but if an older ant comes up it feeds from the labial where the food first goes and it's in its roughage form now there's a wonderful spiritual principle there that's one thing to be able to give food but we've got to know how to give it and in what doses and of course to come to somebody who says well I'm interested in the word of God say right get your Bible out we'll do a study on Revelation um, is like giving them from the labial instead of the crop but then of course as a person develops in the truth um, one would expect them to go over to the meat of the word so there's some powerful lessons in that little animal which is of course picked up by Solomon but the same idea comes out here that we have to have that which we can give to others we have to be able to feed others in the ecclesia so here is one who's whose um, uh, lips are like a honeycomb that dropped that which was necessary for life verse 12 and again it's looking back of course because she's now married to him so it's a reflection back on her life of probation 
and speaking of her, her, her uh, exclusiveness unto him. He, she was like a garden enclosed. Notice in the margin it's got barred, fenced. A garden fenced is my sister, my spouse. She was just for him. There was no other male in her life and she would never ever go to another male. She was just for him. Spiritual lesson, clear isn't it? We are Christ's bride. We belong to him and we have no right to go after other lovers. A garden enclosed is my sister spouse. A spring shut up. Interesting because the word spring there is actually the Hebrew word for a heap of rocks. And we tend to be referring, if you look at the, the figure here, to a, um, to a dam or a store of water. So as the water flows down, the lesson is very clear, you can do two things, can't you? If you've got water flowing, you can watch it go by, I suppose, and do nothing about it. You can reach down and just grab a little bit as it trickles past, or you can block it and have a reservoir of water. And the latter is what we've got to do with God's Word. We come along to a class study class and we put up a dam, as it were, a reservoir, and we start to fill it with water. At home, we're probably like the flow of water is going through all the time. That's fair enough. But when we come to study the Word, we put a dam across it, so I want a bit more, a bit more of that water. And so this bride is represented as storing up the Word of God, storing up the water, not just simply letting it flow past. So she is likened there to this um, uh, heap of stones. The whole phrase, a spring shut up, is the is a Hebrew word which relates to a heap of stones. And she is a fountain sealed. And so the word was there, uh, the life was the the the, um, the water was there, and the life was there, but it was sealed because it was exclusively for the use of the beloved. And so it's got this beautiful context in it. So she is a garden enclosed. Um, a beautiful representation, of course, of the virgin bride of Christ who's devoted her life to him. And then talking about this garden, he goes on to say, and thy garden in the orchard, this garden um, has plants which are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor, spikenard, spike, sorry, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. So here's this beautiful garden and now it's a garden which is bringing forth fruit. So again we can go through to, um, uh, to Proverbs 31 and those last verses that it should uh, give her the fruit of her hands. Um, oh sorry, her fruits. Sorry, I'm top of my head again. I'll quote it correctly. Um, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. So she is very fruitful and fruit is the thing that's emphasised here. Um, another quotation you could put alongside that is Proverbs 5 verses 15 to 20 and I'll just read these words because they're very applicable again. They're in contrast to a man who goes after uh, a harlot and the question is asked of the young man why go after the harlot? And so in Proverbs 5 and verses 15 we've got this advice drink waters out of thine own system and running waters out of thine own well let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and the rivers of waters in the streets let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of thy youth let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe let her breast satisfy thee at all times 
and be thou ravished always with her love. He goes on and says, and why wilt thou my son be ravished with a strange woman? And how beautiful that fits in. They're almost straight out of Song of Solomon, that terminology, same writer, Solomon. But the terminology is exactly the same. And there is Christ as the beloved. And he's got no desire to drink out of any other fountains than the one that's been provided for him in the Ecclesia. And here it is. It's the bride of Christ. And he doesn't look beyond that. He is not Christ. He is not a saviour to people out there in the world, to the Catholics or to the Protestants, whatever they might be. He is a saviour. He is a beloved. He is a husband only to the Ecclesia of God. So that he has been, he has separated us and he has um, lavished his love upon us exclusively. And he asks us to return that unto him. So she has done that here. And she is a garden enclosed. And she has returned that, that love unto him. And she's done it exclusively to him. All of these, um, uh, or most of these spices here we've already dealt with. And you can go back to earlier notes and pick up the, the, um, the spiritual application. If you take, of course, um, uh, those um, spices and add them up, you have nine spices. And nine spices, of course, is the number of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 22. There are nine fruits of the Spirit, and here are the fruits of the Spirit, but here they're given, of course, as spices, nevertheless fruit. Uh, they're also interesting that they are of two different classes because spikenard, saffron, calamus and cinnamon are small bushes, while frankincense, myrrh and aloes are large trees. So, again, we've, of course, got in mind that there is all types involved here. We don't have to be big, big, tall cedars to be in the kingdom of God. We can be little, tiny bushes too, as long as we're bringing forth fruit to God. And sometimes, of course, those small trees are very, very fruitful. So there's large trees and small bushes given here as a representative of the ecclesia of God. Now again, in Brother Ask's book, he actually takes this verse and applies it to Revelation 22. You know, the trees of righteousness in the garden and of course it's, it's so appropriate because this is this time. This bride now is immortal. These fruits which have been built up by the bride in her time of probation are what she's now going to use in the world. It's the fruit she's going to give to the world. She's been giving it to her brethren and sisters while she's in her time of probation. She's now going to give it to the world. And she's represented therefore in Revelation 22 as the trees of righteousness. And Brother Thomas very beautifully brings this verse in to complement that and says the wood produced fruit and leaves a tree without fruit may be very beautiful to look at but would not be life sustaining and a tree without leaves would be dead or in the winter of its existence a wood of trees producing fruit every month or all the year round which is Revelation 22 and covered with beautiful unfading leaves or in the words of Solomon an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits cypress, spikenard, saffron, calamus and cinnamon and all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices is a soul-inspiring symbol of outflowing, fragrant, genial and happying influences of the New Jerusalem. Paradise in the healing principles brought to bear upon the nations in its administration of the affairs of the subjected world. So Brother Thomas very beautifully summarises this picture here. Fruits established in the time of probation but they are typical of the they are now seen in the immortalised bride who is the trees of the book of Revelation and verse 15 he ends up his comment by saying she's a fountain of gardens or as it should be the other way around she is a garden fountain 
well of living water and streams from Lebanon. <coughs> living water. Where, where, what will we put there? John 4. Remember the woman of Samaria? He likened himself to the to waters of water of life. John 4 verse 14. He is a fountain of living waters. So she is a reflection of him. That's what it's saying. If Christ can take that note, that compliment to himself in the New Testament, and here in, in spirit he's giving it to the bride, she is a reflection of him. He's, he can give forth life living waters. We must be prepared to give forth life giving waters as well. Now the bride, she can't wait for, to get into this marriage. She's married to him, but they still haven't done anything. He's taken her up to Lebanon, showed her what to do, and you know, you can sort of again use your imagination. She's sort of saying, let's get on with it. And he's standing here with his mouth open, gaping and saying, you're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. You know, I'm, I'm glad I married you. Of all those other girls out there, you are the most beautiful. And he, she wants to get on with it. And so she says in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, come thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Simple terms, there's still something has to happen king of the north has to come down and the king of the south has to push it in you see it's a picture out of Ezekiel 38 of Daniel chapter 11 the battle of Armageddon has to take place before they can enter into the garden so she just says look let's get this over and done with so wake O north wind and come upon come thou south so Ezekiel 38 Daniel 11 is the explanation of what she's talking about and uh, what's going to come out of that well fruit's going to come out of that Remember, that takes us back to that earlier song, doesn't it, that we picked up so beautifully in an earlier song that the fig tree is going to have fruit, a green fruit on it when Christ comes. In addition to what we're told in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 that the tree will have leaves, it'll have green fruit. But she says, I want that fruit to ripen. And what will ripen it, of course, is Armageddon. And when Russia makes its move down in the Middle East and Israel suffers the green figs will ripen it needs that pressure before they will ripen so she says the garden is going to be prepared and it will be prepared by a north wind and a south wind and of course takes her mind straight to those prophecies in Ezekiel 38 and 11 I've also ringed in there the two words my and his because she says let it come upon my garden that he might come into his garden so she's acknowledging there's one and the same garden they're talking about we want the kingdom Christ wants the kingdom the kingdom is paradise it's the garden enclosed we want it, Christ wants it it's our garden, it's his garden and she's acknowledging that as a true bride would share you know, today there's his and hers isn't there, particularly when you've got usually couples and one is working and this is my car, I pay for it and that's my car because I pay for that and so forth it goes on here's true unity here where the bride and groom share it it's not my garden it's his garden no it's not his garden it's my garden so there's a sharing here of the beauties of the kingdom age and so the picture finishes this whole picture of the bride finishes as far as the Jewish section is concerned in verse 1 of chapter 5 she can now finally come into her garden the north and south winds have blown and now she can come into the garden and so the groom says come into my garden my sister's spouse I have gathered my myrrh with my spices I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey I have drunk my wine with my milk I eat friends drink yea drink abundantly O beloved now 
time has run out, but there's contrast here, of course, between, notice it's with, my myrrh with my spice, my honeycomb with honey, and my wine with milk. And what it's saying here, of course, is an absolute perfect balance. Everything's come together. This is immortality. And it is the blessings upon the nations as well. It's interesting that he says there, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. Because in the first of Kings 10 verse 10, that's what the Queen of Sheba brought. And it says in first of Kings 10 verse 10 that the Queen of Sheba brought spice like no other spice to Solomon. And she is used in the New Testament as typical of the nations who will submit to Christ. So when he says, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice, there's probably an indication here too, a little hint to us, the nations have now succumbed. The nations have brought their gifts to Christ. The kingdom can start. And so it's the kingdom beginning in verse 5. And there is this call then for everybody to rejoice. Drink abundantly, O my beloved. And so she's invited to drink. But notice, of course, we'd have to put Umi alongside, I've drunk my wine with my milk. Um, that we, of course, were told that we will, we will drink wine and you with him in the kingdom. Matthew 26 and verse 29. So there is a fulfilment of that. The kingdom, the uh, kingdom of God begins, and both the saints and the Gentiles now uh, are, ab- are blessed and able to partake of it. So we did get there. It's a little bit late, it's half past nine, but we did get there through that uh, sixth song. Um, we have really completed the picture of of Song of Solomon, because what we're now going to do is repeat the whole thing all over again, but from a Gentile aspect. But the same thing is going to be there. We're going to follow right through the process of of the calling of the bride, the preparing of the bride, the wedding, and finally the kingdom. Same picture, but from a Gentile aspect. So we've we've covered the story of the Song of Solomon thus far, but we'll pick up a lot more points as we go into it. And next week, God willing, or next fortnight, we'll pick up the um, seventh song, and we'll spend the whole night on the seventh song because it is, of all the songs of Solomon, the key because it's the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the Gentile uh, dispensation and that comes out very beautifully in that next song. Thank you.